This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. And I'm Dr. Kisco. For those of you who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, uh, I teach in the Center for Peace and Justice Education. I teach two um, special topics courses. One is on um, homelessness. It's called Homeless Chic, U.S. Poverty and Privilege. And the second is called Baseball Justice and the American Dream. Um, and so in thinking about baseball, I thought that it might be useful um, for us to spend some time considering the impact that Jackie Robinson had um, in breaking Major League Baseball's color barrier in 1947. And I wanted to look at how this affects our country today. So the title of my presentation is Representing Race and Equality, Jackie Robinson's Legacy. Can you guys hear me okay? Everybody's good? All right. Okay. So I'd actually like to begin with a clip um, from Ken Burns' critically acclaimed 1994 documentary, Baseball, in an effort to situate us within the historical and social climate um, that set the stage for Jackie Robinson's tremendous feat of breaking the color barrier. So bear with me as I tackle technology. Um, to new ideas. It took years to persuade them to put numbers on uniforms. And it is the hardest thing in the world to get big league baseball to change anything. Even spikes on a new pair of shoes. March of 1945, Mr. Rickey told me in confidence that only the board of directors of the ball club knew, and only his family knew, and now I was going to know, that he was going to bring a black player to the white Dodgers. And Mr. Rickey said that going back to when he was the baseball coach at Ohio Western University, uh, he took the team down to play a series at South Bend, Indiana with Notre Dame. And he said, my best player was my catcher, and he was black. But, uh, said Mr. Rickey, when we were registering uh, the squad in the uh, hotel, when the black player stepped up to sign the register, the clerk uh, jerked the register back and said, uh, we don't register niggers in this hotel. And Rickey said, I remonstrated. He said, this is the baseball team from Ohio Western. We're the guests of Notre Dame University. He said, I don't care who you are. We don't register niggers in this hotel. Well, Mr. Ricky said, um, there are two beds in uh, my room, aren't you? And he said, yes. Well, he says, can he use one bed and not register? And the clerk grudgingly uh, allowed that to happen. And Mr. Ricky took the key, handed it to the black uh, player, and said, you go up to the room and wait for me. As soon as I get the rest of the team settled, I'll be up. Mr. Ricky said, when I opened the door, I hear this fine young man I was sitting on the edge of a chair, and he was crying. And he was pulling at his hands. And he said, Mr. Ricky, it's my skin. If I could just tear it off. I'd be like everyone else. And Mr. Ricky told me this day in March of 1945, he said, all these years I have heard that boy crying. And now he said, I'm going to do something about it. So that was the famous sports broadcaster, Red Barber, 
who served as the voice of the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1939 to 1953. And he introduces us to Branch Rickey, who became president, part owner, and general manager of the team when he left St. Louis in 1942. Rickey began to orchestrate what was called, quote, baseball's great experiment, or the Jackie Robinson experiment. Jackie himself liked to call it the Rickey experiment. The big leagues of Major League Baseball had been off limits to blacks, a white man's club, since the year 1884. The policy of segregation that began in 1885 was unofficial and absolute. No documents attest to baseball's apartheid. There was simply an understanding among every major league club owner and every minor league club owner for more than 60 years that no blacks could play in so-called organized baseball. Undoubtedly, if blacks were kept out of the national pastime, it followed naturally that blacks could be prevented from attending outstanding schools and colleges, forbidden to move into attractive neighborhoods, barred from admission to pleasant country clubs, and even denied the right to vote. America, in the 1940s, during Branch Rickey's tenure as Brooklyn Dodgers general manager, was stained with brutal bigotry. Yet as we heard from Red Barber, Branch Rickey, a complex white man with roots in Southern Ohio, stood his ground as the lone club owner who supported integration in baseball, casting the one vote of exception as 15 out of 16 club owners opposed uh, integration in a secret vote. Rickey was celebrated for his shrewdness, his talkativeness, and the sermons he loved to deliver for the sports pages. Ricky had already transformed the game once by devising the farm system, or minor league training clubs, during his quarter of a century as president of the St. Louis Cardinals. He was already rich, and he was in his 60s, but he loved the challenge of improving a new team, and he loved Brooklyn. Now he was plotting a second, still more sweeping revolution. Ricky believed both in fair play and in big profits. He was convinced integration would be good for baseball and for his books. He confided, quote, the greatest untapped reservoir of raw material in the history of the game is the black race. The Negroes will make us winners for years to come, and for that I will happily bear being called a bleeding heart and do-gooder and all that humanitarian rot. Ricky dared to say so openly, so he moved instead with characteristic cunning. He announced he was going to organize his own black team, the Brown Dodgers, as part of a new all-black United States League in competition with the long-standing um, Negro National League. Meanwhile, Ricky began the search for the ideal candidate who could help his experiment succeed. The first black baseball player to cross the color line would be subjected to intense public scrutiny, and Ricky knew that that player would have to be more than a talented athlete to succeed. He would also have to be a strong person who could agree to, av uh, to avoid open confrontation when subjected to the hostility and insults, at least for a few years. Enter Jack Roosevelt Robinson. And I'm going to show you another clip here. If I can get it.
Meanwhile, Branch Rickey's scouts began to scour the Negro Leagues for a likely player. He wants his race to advance. He wants his race to be recognized. That's the type of guy Jackie was. That's his whole thing. Recognition. Treat me as I'm supposed to be treated. Give our people a fair shot at it. We make it fine. If we don't make it, that's still fine. But give us an equal chance. That's what a race man is. Roosevelt Robinson was born in 1919 in Cairo, Georgia, the grandson of a slave and the fifth child of a sharecropper who soon deserted his family. He was brought up by his mother, a domestic, in a white neighborhood in Pasadena, California, where white children pelted him with rocks until he and his elder brothers began to pelt them back. high school was concerned about what was happening to his race. He had that early on. His mother, Mally Robinson, was an extraordinary woman. And when she came up from Georgia with five children and no prospects, and just her determination to make it for her kids, uh, that she'd set the example and set the pace. She was a real pioneer. And so she, a part of what she gave him was self-esteem. He, he wore white shirts to UCLA. He was ebony black. And at a time when my generation really was not that proud to be black, but not Jack. And what attracted me to him was he walked straight, he held his head up, and he was proud of not his, just his color, but his people. At Pasadena Junior College in UCLA, he excelled at every sport he tried, led his basketball league in scoring two years running broke his own brother's national record at the broad jump and was one of the country's best running backs in football. Watch him beating UCLA to a 16-6 victory over Oregon. Baseball was relatively low on his list, but he was good enough at it so that when he left the Army in 1944, the Kansas City Monarchs offered him a job as shortstop at $400 a month. Zappi came to Kansas City Monarchs in 1945. We spring trained that year in Houston, Texas, and after spring training, we went to New Orleans. Exhibition game there. Well, we had more people seats in the bus. Jack's look, that was rookie. My seat is at the step of the bus. I'm going to find by just like everybody else. That's the type of guy that he was. Jackie came to the Monarchs, and we've been going for 30 years going to this, this filling station in Oklahoma. And where we would buy the gas, we got two 50-gallon tanks on that thing. We'd buy the gas, but we couldn't use the restroom. Jackie wanted to use the restroom. Jackie said, I'm going to the restroom. Man, the boy, you can't go to that restroom. Jackie said, take the hose out the tank. 
took to take the whole life tank. This guy ain't gonna sell 50 gallons, I mean 100 gallons of gas. He ain't gonna sell 100 gallons of gas for nothing more. See, so he said, well, I'll tell you what, Say, Jackie said, if we don't get it, we can't go to the restaurant, we won't get any gas here, we get it someplace else. He said, well, you boys can go to the restaurant, but don't stay long. So actually, he started something there. Now, every place we would go, we wanted to know where could we use the restroom. If we couldn't use the restroom, no gas. Robinson was 14 months old in 1920 when his mother moved five children from Georgia to Pasadena, California, a wealthy and well-planned conservative Los Angeles suburb of about 50,000 people. A 1939 Columbia University study ranked Pasadena the nation's most livable city. But during Robinson's youth, black residents, who represented a tiny portion of the population, were treated like second-class citizens. Blacks were only allowed to swim in the public pool on Tuesdays, the day the water was changed, and could only use the YMCA one day a week. In its movie theaters, blacks were limited to the segregated balcony. Jackie's family lived in poverty in an all-white neighborhood where he faced constant racial slurs and taunts. Ironically, Robinson's Pasadena background played a role in Ricky's decision to select him out of the Negro Leagues to break the color barrier as much as for his personal characteristics as for his baseball skills. He knew that if the Robinson experiment failed, the cause of baseball integration would be set back for many years uh, thereafter. He could have chosen another league, Negro League player with greater talent or more name recognition, but he wanted somebody who, 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 we, who could be what we call today a role model. Robinson was articulate and well-educated. He lived among whites in his Pasadena neighborhood, at school, and in college, and he played on integrated sports teams. But as you can see, Jackie Robinson was the type of person who stood up for what he believed was right. He wanted justice, and he did not remain silent. He had a hot temper and strong political views. In fact, as an officer in the Army during World War II, Robinson was court-martialed and later acquitted for resisting bus segregation at Fort Hood, Texas. Ricky calculated that Robinson could handle the emotional pressure while helping the Dodgers on the field. Let's take a look. Three eighty-seven, his first season, and Wendell Smith still pressing for integration arranged a tryout for Robinson and two other young Negro League players with the Boston Red Sox. Although Boston manager Joe Cronin was impressed by Robinson's skills, Boston passed up the opportunity to become the first Major League team to integrate. Instead, it would be the last. By this time, Robinson had caught the attention of Branch Rickey. He sent his chief scout applied suit for it to look Robinson over. Well, he called me and he said, uh, I want you to see a game in Chicago Friday night. He said, pay in particular attention to a fellow named Robinson. 
now he said, I want you to identify yourself. Tell him who sent you and what you want to see. His arm, paying particular attention to his arm. Suitforth was impressed and told Robinson Branch Rickey would like to see him. He came down and I talked to him at length. I mean, uh, he was pouring the questions to me about why is Ricky interested in me? And the more you talk to the guy, the, the more you're impressed with the guy, the determination written over him. Robinson did not know precisely what Ricky had in mind, but he agreed to accompany Sukforth back to Brooklyn. Well, I introduced Robinson, and uh, Mr. Ricky went right to work on him. He said, Jack, I've been looking for a great colored ball player for a great many years. I have some reason to believe you might be that man. Mr. Ricky, who had never laid eyes on Robinson, sent for him and had him in his office uh, for three hours. Mr. Ricky was uh, not only very intelligent, but very intelligent vocally. He never used profanity, uh, and his strongest expedient was Judas Priest. But that morning, Mr. Ricky took Robinson into every possible negative situation he would encounter. All of the world, Jim Crowism, etc. And he, uh, he took Robinson into what would happen on the playing field, that he'd be thrown out of his head, that he would be slid into in spite, etc. Uh, he screamed in his face every expletive that Robinson would ever hear. And he said to Robinson, do you have the guts not to fight back? And he said, finally, the only way you can be the first man to do this, the first black man, is you'll have to promise me that for three years, you will not answer back. You cannot uh, win this by a retaliation. You can't echo a curse uh, with a curse, a blow with a blow. So Robinson gave it a whole thought before he answered. And, and that impressed me. If he just said right off quick, oh, I can do that. Well, he gave it some thought and he said, uh, Mr. Ricky, if uh, you want to take this gamble, I'll promise you there'll be no incident. And that was just what Ricky wanted to hear. He picked Jack because he showed an assertive side of himself, which he would need. He showed the kind of strength to go through things. He also was a deeply religious man, Mr. Ricky was, and he knew about Jack's religious convictions. So they were kind of alike in that sense. I think he saw the various aspects of the character that attracted him and made him feel that he could come through a scathing experience without being harmed and without giving in, giving up. It was very much of a partnership between them, and they had to agree on these things because they were in it together. Ricky needed Jack as much as Jack needed Ricky. They just had to do it together. They picked him because of who he was and what he was. Sure, the baseball skill was important, but there were other skilled players. Monty Irvin, everyone expected, would be the first. Uh, but Robinson had a determination uh, and an ability to, on the one hand, turn the other cheek, but on the other hand, that as he turned the cheek, to let the person uh, who was his antagonist know that it would come around again. 
the one thing that we weren't sure that Zachary could hold his temper. Zachary had a terrific temper. He knew how to fight and he would fight. If Zachary could hold on that temper, he could do it. He knew he had the whole black race, so to speak, on his shoulders. So he just said, wait, I can take it, I can handle it. I will take it for the rest of the country and the guys. And that's why he took all that mess. And it killed him. On Tuesday, October 23rd, 1945, Ricky's office made an announcement that it said would affect baseball from coast to coast. The Montreal Royals, the Dodgers' top farm club, had hired Jackie Robinson. If he did well for Montreal, he would move up to the Dodgers. So although baseball was now ahead of the curve, ahead of the country, the baseball establishment was still against the experiment. Rogers Hornsby said an integrated team would never work. Bob Feller, who had often barnstormed against black teams, was sure Robinson would fall short because he was too muscle-bound to hit well. Quote, if he were a white man, Feller explained, I doubt they, if they would even consider him big league material. But in his first game for Montreal at Jersey City on April 18th, Robinson got four hits, including a three-run homer, stole two bases, and scored twice by provoking a pitcher to balk. This would have been a big day for any man, the New York Times reported, but under the special circumstances, it was a tremendous feat. All season long, Robinson endured without complaint separate and unequal facilities pretended neither to hear the taunts of his opponents nor to mind the initial coolness of his teammates. Nevertheless, the, un the unrelenting pressure and abuse took a fearful toll. By season's end, Robinson was racked with stomach pain and on the brink of a nervous breakdown. But he had sparked the Royals with sharp hitting and fielding and brilliant base running, leading them to the first, uh, first to the league championship and then to victory in the Little World Series. That year in Montreal, he stole 40 bases, and the fellow who couldn't hit won the International Batting Championship. At the end of the 1946 season, as he was leaving the ballpark, a crowd of fans swarmed about behind him. Robinson began to run. The fans ran after him. Then Jackie began to cry. He said, quote, I was crying because here was a big crowd running after a black man, not to lynch him, but to get his autograph. The next year, when Ricky promoted Robinson to Brooklyn, he thought the other players would welcome Jack. Here was a winning ball player. Here was a man who meant pennants and World Series titles. In an era when most ball players earned eight or $10,000 a year, here was a man who meant cash. It surprised Ricky then when half a dozen Dodgers prepared a petition that said, in effect, if you're bringing up the colored guy, you'll have to trade us. 
Harold Pee Wee Reese from Louisville underwent a crisis. He had grown up in a segregated community, and when he was young, his father even showed him the local hanging tree for, quote, when a nigger gets out of line. But as a Christian, Reese wondered how he could deny Robinson the right to inherit a small portion of the earth. He could not and would not. Citing his financial insecurity and the petition's possible backlash, he refused to sign, thus implicitly challenging the team's racists. Much after the fact, Reese would say, people tell me that I helped Jackie, but knowing my background and the progress I've made, I have to say he helped me as much as I helped him. Word of the petition reached Leo DeRocher, the Dodgers manager, while the team was on a spring training tour in Panama's Canal Zone. At one o'clock in the morning, DeRocher, in his pajamas, assembled the players in an army mess kitchen. He told them what they could do with their petition. I'm the manager and I'm paid to win. And I'd play an elephant if he could win for me. And this Robinson fellow is no elephant. You can't throw him out on the bases and you can't get him out at the plate. This fellow is a great player. He's gonna win pennants. He's gonna put money in your pockets and mine. And here's something else. He's only the first, boys, only the first. There are many more colored ball players coming right behind him and they're hungry, boys. They're scratching and diving. And unless you wake up, these colored ball players are going to run you right out of the park. Fuck your petition. Go back to bed. It was announced that Jackie Robinson will be playing first base for the Dodgers, and on opening day at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, New York, the first black man in Major League Baseball took the field. It was April 15, 1947. The Boston Chronicle captioned it as, triumph of whole race seen in Jackie's debut in Major League Ball. Yet the DeRocher's si silencing of the petition did not squash the country's prejudice, and the jeering and threats were just the beginning from fans and opposing teams and managers. When the Phillies arrived for a three-game series, they began shouting racial epithets during batting practice and kept it up until the last out. Nigger, go back to the cotton fields. We don't want you here. The Phillies' southern-born manager, Ben Chapman, led the jeering, and Robinson came close to cracking, later confiding that, for one wild and crazed, rage-crazed minute, I thought, to hell with Mr. Ricky's experiment. This noble experiment, it's clear it won't be a success. What a glorious and cleansing thing it would be to let go. I could throw down my bat, stride over to the Phillies' dugout, grab one of those white sons of bitches and smash his teeth in with my despised black fist. Then I could walk away from it, and I'd never become a sports star. But my son could tell his son someday what his daddy could have been if he hadn't been too much of a man. Only his pledge to Ricky prevented him from making good on this private threat. By the third day of this ceaseless abuse, even Eddie Stanky, a teammate who had initially signed the petition against Jackie, had all he could take. Listen, you yellow-belly bastards, he bellowed. Why don't you yell at somebody who can answer back? Everywhere he went that season, Robinson endured jeering and even more serious incidents from being deliberately spiked to receiving death threats. His anger almost overcame him, but his teammates had his back, and together they just kept playing. When taking infield practice in Old Crosley Field in Cincinnati, a city on the Ohio River that regarded itself as a border town, 
Fans began to jeer Jackie's every move. The Cincinnati players picked it up. They shouted at him, hey, Jungle Bunny, hey, Snowflake. Yet if there was a single moment when the success of Robinson and what many were calling the noble experiment became assured, it came on this day. Suddenly, Pee Wee Reese, the young Dodger captain, raised a hand and called time. The infield drill stopped. Reese walked over from shortstop to first base and put an arm lightly on Robinson's shoulders. There they stood, white man and black man, number one and number 42. Reese said not a word, but simply stared into the Cincinnati dugout. Many consider this to be one of the all-time finer moments in sports. As you can imagine, this was a particularly unnerving and frightening time for Jackie's family. His wife and sweetheart, Rachel Isom, who he met at UCLA and married in 1946, was at home with a new baby in 1947, their first child, Jack Jr. The couple would go on to have two more children, Sharon and David. Ultimately, though, it was Jackie's consistently incredible play that earned him the respect throughout the league. The Sporting News, which had opposed baseball's integration just a few months earlier, now named Robinson its very first Rookie of the Year. He had run up 42 successful bunt hits, 29 stolen bases, 12 home runs, and a 297 average, and he had helped drive the Dodgers to another pennant. No other ball player on this club, said Dixie Walker, who had once wanted to quit rather than play alongside a black man, has done more to put the Dodgers up in the race than Robinson has. He is everything Branch Rickey said he, would, he was. It was Robinson's style as much as his statistics or his color that made him a star. The fast scrambling style of play Negro Leaguers called tricky baseball was brought by Jackie, deviling pitchers by dancing off base, even stealing home, something he would manage to accomplish 19 times before he was through. He would go on to receive numerous awards and accolades for his play, which were exceptional in their own right, but even more so considering the pressure and challenge with which he was faced. So as you can see, 1947 Rookie of the Year, 1949 Most Valuable Player, Six consecutive All-Star games from 1949 to 1954. 311 lifetime batting average. Played in six World Series and was a member of the 1955 World Series championship team. And in 1962, Jackie Robinson was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was so good, which is why the experiment worked. Robinson's achievement did more than change the way baseball is played and who plays it. His actions on and off the field helped pave the way for Americans to confront its racial hypocrisy. The dignity with which Robinson handled his encounters with racism drew public attention to the issue, stirred the conscience, consciences of many white Americans, and gave black Americans a tremendous boost of pride and self-confidence. Robinson retired before the 1957 season, weary and suffering from 10 years of injuries and abuse. He remained determined to integrate the game, for it proceeded very slowly after his entry into the major leagues. As late as uh, 1953, only six of the 16 teams had black players. 
It wasn't until 1959, a dozen years after Jackie made his debut, that the last holdout, the Boston Red Sox, hired a black player. To Jackie Robinson, it seemed that if integration could come to baseball, it can be achieved in every corner of the land. After retiring from baseball, Robinson took several jobs, including vice president at Chock Full of Nuts. He still believed baseball could help show the nation uh, the way to racial, uh, national ra racial integration, but he was also an advocate of self-help, urging blacks to become producers, manufacturers, creators of business, and providers of jobs. He helped found black-run enterprises and campaigned for causes. But you may be wondering, what was Jackie Robinson's relationship to Martin Luther King? That's why we're all here today, right? So Dr. King understood with remarkable acuity the political and symbolic power of sports. He understood that the athletic field and athletes could be a powerful megaphone for civil rights and racial injustice. As a teenager in 1947, he watched with rapt attention as Jackie Robinson broke the racial barrier in Major League Baseball. A decade later, as Robinson's career was winding down with the Brooklyn Dodgers, Robinson started to speak out for civil rights. Many people in the press and civil rights community discouraged Robinson from taking this step, worried it would tarnish his image, and even argued that as an athlete, Robinson had no vocal place in the struggle. But King, by then the movement's undisputed leader, said that Robinson had every right to speak because he was, quote, a pilgrim that walked in the lonesome byways toward the high road of freedom. He was a sit-inner before sit-ins, a freedom rider before freedom rides. Clearly, Robinson heartily approved of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his efforts for civil rights, and frequently threw the weight of his fame behind Dr. King to support his efforts. Jackie raised money for him, marched with him, and wrote of him in his New York uh, Post column. He even wrote to the White House to urge more governmental support of King's activities. When Dr. King was jailed in Georgia, for instance, Jackie urged Nixon, who was running for president at the time, to call Dr. King or his wife to offer condolences and encouragement. Nixon and his aides refused, calling the idea grandstanding. Jackie's point, however, was proven when Kennedy, Nixon's opponent, called Coretta King to offer condolences and was widely praised. In 1968, Martin Luther King had dinner at Don Newcomb's house with his family. Newcomb was a teammate of Jackie Robinson's. This was 28 days before King was assassinated. King said to Newcomb at this dinner, Don, I don't know what I would have done without you guys setting up the minds of people for change. You, Jackie, and Roy will never know how easy you made it for me to do my job. Until his death from diabetes and heart disease in 1972, at age 53, Robinson continued speaking out. He was a constant presence on picket lines and rallies on behalf of civil rights. The civil rights movement and the federal legislation it inspired finally ended most of the overt discrimination players had been forced to endure. But during the 1960s, there was still only one black umpire, no black managers, and few blacks in the front offices of baseball. Jackie refused to attend old-timers games until, quote, he said, I see genuine interest in breaking the barriers that deny blacks access 
to managerial and front office positions. Jackie Robinson's impact as a pioneer, the first black player in Major League Baseball, resulted in the acceptance of blacks in other major sports, notably professional football and professional basketball. It also helped change the minds of Americans through the context of our country's national pastime to overcome racial prejudice, not only in the world of sports, but in United States legislation. In 1997, Major League Baseball celebrated the 50-year anniversary of Jackie Robinson's debut on April 15th. They decided that number 42 would be forever retired on every team across the major leagues, and that from then on, April 15th would become Jackie Robinson Day. Annually, all Major League Baseball players, managers, and coaches wear 42 to commemorate and honor the man who broke the color barrier. So this leads us to today and Jackie's legacy. So where are we now? Does Jackie Robinson's legacy as a hero of social justice continue to influence efforts of equality in baseball and within American society? Is baseball improving in its efforts of equality? Interestingly, there has been a stiff decrease in black baseball players. Currently, only 8.05% of MLB players are black, a stark contrast to the nearly 20% during the 1980s and 90s. It is less than half of the 17.25% from 1959, when the Red Sox became the last team to integrate. Of the 30 Major League Baseball teams, 10 of them began last season with no more than one African-American player on the roster. 25% of the black players in MLB play for just three teams, the Dodgers, the Yankees, and the Angels. So why the decline? Could it be due to the fact that baseball is no longer America's only sport? Could a lack of resources in many urban areas be contributing to the decline? In spite of the stiff decline in African-American participation, Major League Baseball has managed to become one of the most multicultural American sports. Foreign-born players, a large number of them of Latin descent, made up 28% of opening day rosters this year. Yet would Jackie Robinson want more from his sport today? More tolerance from his country? Would he be discouraged to see women being disproportionately represented, paid less, and marginalized in the workplace and in particular within the sports industry? Would Robinson be dismayed by an unspoken yet very real intolerance for homosexuality in professional sports and one still prevalent in our culture? Who will be our country's next Jackie Robinson? When will a player feel accepted enough to come out openly as a gay player while a current player in one of the four major professional sports, baseball, basketball, football, and hockey? When will a woman, or a black man for that matter, be commissioner of Major League Baseball? Should Major League Baseball be scrutinized to look beyond the money-making of marketing Jackie Robinson's legacy, and instead choose to look at his contribution to society as a whole, inspiring the Major League Baseball to again lead the way in this country for equality? This year, on Jackie Robinson Day, the weekend 
um, of April 15th. On April 12th, a new film is being released, and the film is called 42. It's directed by Brian Hageland, and it stars Chadwick Boseman and Harrison Ford. Um, and the story uh, is, is, is the Jackie Robinson true story. Uh, it comes out the weekend of the, the 66th anniversary of uh, Robinson breaking the color barrier. And I wanna, I wanna take a look at the trailer with you as we conclude today. And I, and I want to leave you with a challenge that you'll go out and see this movie, and when you do, you'll watch it critically. And when you, when you look at this critically, you can ask, how does Robinson get represented? Is it a productive and honorable one? Is it biased? Will it help foster further equality within today's society? So let's take a look at the trailer. We'll do this another way. Thank you. 
way. You are a hero. Why don't you look in the mirror? This is a white man's day. I'm not going anywhere! I'm right here! Maybe tomorrow we'll all wear 42. How many of you have seen that preview already? Few. Good. In so many ways, Jackie Robinson was a model for equality. And I think so often we learn about him when we're young and we understand that he broke the color barrier and that's that. And we don't really understand what that signifies in, in a broader sense in our culture and in our country. And especially for you students today, right, living in 2013, how does this translate? And so I hope that this presentation has given you the, the understanding um, that Jackie Mo Robin Robinson modeled equality, he challenges us um, to honor his efforts in the name of justice and to take a look at the life and, and, the, and the society that we're living in and, and see where that can continue to be applied and, we, and not to let this legacy die. So um, I just want to thank you all so much for coming. I have some um, surveys to be distributed, if you wouldn't mind taking a minute just to fill out um, your responses to the presentation. Um, and that's it. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.